We read God's word in Proverbs 23. Text is made up of the last seven verses. We won't read them a second time. When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee, and put a knife to thy throat if thou be a man given to appetite. Be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. Labor not to be rich, cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye. Neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. The morsel which thou hast eaten shalt thou vomit up and lose thy sweet words. Speak not in the ears of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of thy words. Remove not the old landmark, and enter not into the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is mighty. He shall plead their cause with thee. Apply thine heart unto instruction, and thine ears to the words of knowledge. Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. My son, if thine heart be wise, my heart shall rejoice, even mine. Yea, my reins shall rejoice when thy lips speak right things. Let not thine heart envy sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. For surely there is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. Hear thou, my son, and be wise, and guide thine heart in the way. Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh, For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Hearken unto thy father that begat thee, and despise not thy mother when she is old. Buy the truth, and sell it not, also wisdom, and instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begetteth a wise child shall have joy of him. Thy father and thy mother shall be glad, and she that bear thee shall rejoice. My son, give me thine heart, and let thine eyes observe my ways, for a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit. She also lieth in wait as for a prey, and increaseth the transgressors among men. And here begins our text. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, Thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Thus far we read the word of God. 
Beloved saints in Christ, there are for the child of God many spiritual dangers. But two of them again and again we are warned against. They are the dangers of wine and of women. And it's not unusual for the Holy Spirit, especially in the book of Proverbs, to speak of those two dangers in the same breath as he does in the chapter that we read. Already in verse 20 is a warning against wine-bibbers and riotous eaters of flesh, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty. But then also a warning against that woman who would lead you astray. And she's called a woman because a woman knows how to tempt a man. But of course it can be the other way around too, that there is a man for whom a woman must be told, That's a strange man. Stay away from him. And now the the Holy Spirit comes once again to that in the, the verses just before our text. For a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit. She also lieth in wait as for a prey, and increaseth the transgressors among men. And what is one way now? One of a number of ways in which a young man or a young woman might deceive the other, or manipulate another into joining them in sin? The answer is, get him or get her drunk. And so immediately following the warning against a strange woman is the warning against drunkenness included in the text. As one of the reasons to take the warning to heart is this, thine eyes shall behold strange women. Covenant people of God of any age must take these warnings to heart and not quickly and lightly dismiss them. We're prone to do that. We're prone to do that, first of all, because of the society in which we live. A a society saturated both with sex and with intoxicating substances. And because we live in the society, we grow dull to the society's sins and forget the need to live antithetically with regard to them. But also, it may be that the covenant people of God think to themselves, I can handle it. This is a substance after all. It's a thing. It's something you drink. I can handle it. Maybe the young people have the idea even that drunkenness once or twice in your teenage years is a rite of passage and something to be sought after. But the Holy Spirit knows better. And the Holy Spirit in our text says, just a moment, take heed, understand the danger. And understand not only the danger inherent in wine and in women, but understand the fickleness, the sinfulness, and the weakness of your and my own heart. And look not thou upon the wine when it is red. Oh, the more urgently do you understand the need for us to take this to heart this evening as we have an applicatory service. We know in our own tradition that the Holy Spirit does not forbid all use of wine. For even this morning, in a holy way, we partook of a little wine and pointed us, it did, 
to the blood of Jesus Christ. It gave us joy. It cheered us as a little wine does cause a heart to rejoice. And it pointed us to the great joys that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. But now, says the Holy Spirit to us, you are, you know this, having partaken of the table of the Lord this morning, you are children of God in Christ. And placed before you is the calling to live not as the world lives, but differently so that the world looks at you. Maybe even some in the church look at you and say, you're different. And one way in which we show ourselves to be different is to take tart the warning against women, and more particularly now for our purposes tonight, why? The wise man and woman and child will get the message. Those who don't get the message are foolish. Why not, by calling this some wise and others foolish, uh, categorizing them as to their eternal destiny, For all of us by nature are fools, and the Lord is pleased to change a fool into a wise person by his work of regeneration and ongoing work of sanctification. But if any leave here tonight and say, that really is overstated, I can handle it, then you are foolish. Wisdom as opposed to folly, is the theme of the very book in which the text is found. And we're pointed to wisdom earlier in the book as that principle which guides and directs the child of God in every decision you and I make so that we aim always to the glory of God. This wisdom isn't something we have inherent in ourselves. If one is wise, if one gets the message, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and in mine. And then part of this wisdom is also looking to Him who is wisdom, with all capital letters, Jesus Christ Himself, who lived in a way that demonstrated the truth of this text. Drinking wine, He did, but avoiding the dangers of wine and of women. So urgent, again, is it that the wise understand that it is folly to get drunk, that not only in the chapter we read, but already in chapter 20 and in chapter 21 also are warnings against drunkenness. But our text is among the most graphic warning in the whole of Scriptures. I call your attention to it under the theme of the drunkard's folly. Notice first that the drunkard is one who is filled with wine. Second, his folly is that he is deceived by wine. And third in the text is an admonition to wisdom. The text is speaking of and warning against not just drinking a little wine in measure at the end perhaps of a day to rejoice in one's toils and labors, or at the Lord's Supper, or on some festive occasion, 
But the text is warning us against drunkenness. That's clear from three things in the text. The first is the mention of wine itself. That, of course, isn't enough. But the text in verse 30 says, uh, refers to the drinking of wine and mixed wine. So clearly it's speaking of how we deal with and use an intoxicating substance. Wine in the scriptures refers to any intoxicating drink made from fruit. The text doesn't use the word strong drink, but the scriptures do refer to strong drink, an intoxicating substance made from grains. And therefore, encompassed in the text is every alcoholic and intoxicating beverage, whether it's wine or beer or a hard liquor. Now, secondly, the text is speaking of the intoxication by these is clear from the description of the man in verse 30 that first of all tarries long at the wine and secondly goes to seek mixed wine. This is not now that man or that woman who at the end of a day has an alcoholic beverage as a refreshment or at some festive occasion in moderation partakes of, but one who tarries long. He never really leaves the table. And as long as he's at the table with the wine glass in front of him, the glass keeps getting refilled. That's the idea of tarrying long. He's also out to seek the best. They that seek mixed wine. Mixed wine would be wine mixed with honey and spices in order to give it a a, a greater flavor. But here he's seeking it. He's on the hunt for it. This consumes him. All of life revolves around his finding the best quality wine so that when he sits down to drink this wine at his leisure and tearing long, he is not going away saying, that was disappointing. But he would say to his neighbor, that was the greatest joy of life. In the third place, the text is speaking of one who is drunk, is clear from verse 29 itself, the opening verse of the text, which describes the effects of drunkenness. Who hath woe? Who hath Sorrow, who hath contentions, who hath babbling, who hath wounds without cause, who hath redness of eyes? And the answer is, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. The woe and the sorrow of which the text speaks refers to the agony of the drunk person expressed in moans and in groans. Much as he tries to convince you that in the way of giving oneself over to intoxication, there is great delight and joy and happiness, when he's drunk, he is not expressing joy and happiness. He moans and he groans, he has griefs, he has troubles, he has anxieties, and they all come to the surface. Who hath contentions, secondly? Watch two drunk people and how they interact with each other and see that instead of there being a friendly companionship and a godly interaction, there becomes strife and bitterness and argumentativeness 
and brawling. And that's the idea of contentions. Who has an issue with another man? Now I might. And then there's a godly way for me to deal with that if I have an issue with a brother or sister in Christ. But the way in which the drunk person deals with it is by coming to blows. Who hath babbling? There the idea, similar to the woes and the sorrows, but now especially expresses anxiety. After all, especially those who become drunk habitually must acknowledge that they do become drunk habitually to deal with and or perhaps try to escape something inside them, deep inside them, an event of the past, a way in which they view themselves in the present perhaps. Something they're trying to escape, and now when drunk, it all comes out. Who hath babbling? They express their anxieties and their fears. Who hath wounds without cause? They stumble, they fall, they run into things, they get bruised, they break limbs. Who hath redness of eyes? Here the reference is to the dull look about the eyes, maybe a bloodshot look, but, but not necessarily red as far as color. A dull look about the eyes that expresses or indicates drunkenness. A little wine makes a merry heart. And a little wine, Paul said to Timothy, he should drink for his oft infirmities and stomach's sake, but too much wine is not healthy and does not bring happiness. The text is speaking of too much wine. Now, let's put this text in light of the revelation in the Word of God in the New Testament. And I'm not right now referring to a passage that speaks of and defends the liberty of the Christian to use any substance that he or she wants, so long as he or she does it to the glory of God. There are those passages too. But let's put it in the light of the Word of God in Ephesians 5 verse 18, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And to compare our text and understand it in light of that text will both help us see how great a sin drunkenness is and enable us to see why this is a very pertinent text for an applicatory service this evening. For in Ephesians 5 verse 18, the Holy Spirit makes a direct contrast between being filled with wine and being filled with the Spirit. And he says, as it were to you and to me, you cannot. You think you can? You think you can handle it? You cannot, at the same time, be filled with wine and filled with the Spirit. Well, let me explain that when the Holy Spirit says that, and when he uses the phrase filled with the Spirit, he's not referring to the work of the Spirit in regenerating, or in forgiving, or in sanctifying, that is, in general sanctification. But, he means this. The man who's filled with the Spirit is one who is, of course, a child of God, but one whose whole life consciously 
and deliberately is devoted to the service of God. He's not just one who says, I'm a child of God. So yeah, somehow I guess, somehow I serve God. Somehow I live a godly life. It's his or her goal. Read the Old Testament, even the book of Acts in Acts chapter 6, referring to a number of men who are filled with the Spirit. And the point I'm making, the contrast isn't one who isn't saved, but they are. The contrast is between some who are saved, but do not consciously live to the praise of the glory of God in all that they do, versus one who does. You cannot be filled with wine and be filled with the Spirit at the same time. That's Ephesians 5.18. In the second place, the reason why those two substances, well, the substance of wine and the Holy Spirit are antithetical is because both are influences and powers. I don't reduce the Holy Spirit to an influence and a power. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And that divine person, whom Jesus Christ poured out on the church when he arose and ascended, in order to bestow on the church all the blessings of salvation that Christ earned for us. But that's what the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit is then. It's not a mere influence of substance. It is the power and the influence of Jehovah God Himself. Whereas wine, or any other intoxicating liquor, is also a power and an influence. Be filled with it, and you don't think straight. You are not in control anymore of your actions. Your own judgments are not those that you can rely on to be accurate. You are under the control of a substance. So, you cannot be filled with both. The child of God, living out of the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, manifesting that we mortify the old man and we quicken the new man, therefore will not, does not, guards against being brought under the influence of wine and lives as though he or she is filled with the Spirit. That's the point of Ephesians 5 verse 18. Now, does that not in itself demonstrate to you and to me that to be drunk is sin? Our text really graphically depicts the point. But if those are the two alternatives, to be filled with the Spirit and live consciously in His power, seek His power and manifest His power, or to be brought under the influence of a substance, if those are the two alternatives, then the one that is drunkenness is to live out of the power of the old man and to give oneself over to sin, whereas the other is to seek the glory of God. You sat this morning at the table of the Lord. And you are brought, we are brought this evening before the Word of God in an applicable text that reminds us to live to the praise of the glory of God in accordance with His law. And that in itself means that inebriation 
and overindulging in alcoholic beverages is not an option for the child of God. In this way, taking the lesson to heart, we follow the example of our Lord and Savior himself. He drank wine. He turned water into wine. So did he drink wine, something that the Pharisees thought they were guarding against, that they accused him of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. That is, one who did not place limits on his intake of food and of drink. Read Matthew eleven nineteen. But a glutton and a wine-bibber he was not. Though partaking of wine, he devoted himself to the glory and service of God. If any was filled with the Spirit, it was Jesus Christ. Follow his example. He lives in you. By way of application, having demonstrated what the text is speaking and what sin it's addressing, three things. Number one, it ought to be evident without my demonstrating it at length that the sin against which the text warns us is a prevalent sin in our midst. Certainly in society, but very possibly also in our own circles, congregations, and families. That wouldn't be a surprise. Uh, The Dutch were not known for their moderation, at least not as a culture and as a society for their moderation when it comes to intoxicating liquids. And so the text is addressing something that to one degree or another is a factor in our homes. Let's not think it's irrelevant to us. In the second place, Let's expand on it and see that though the text speaks of drunkenness, there are broader applications. For it applies to anything else that would affect our judgment. That can include the abuse of prescription drugs. Prescription drugs when used under the supervision of a doctor and as prescribed might at times affect our judgment. But then we're using them, at least endeavoring to use them, responsibly, and perhaps taking to heart the warning, do not operate equipment when taking this drug. But now, in our society, it's known that there are prescription drugs that are abused because of the effect they have on the person. It may be the beneficial effect of helping deal with chronic pain. That's a grief and a burden that some of God's people endure. But the abuse of the prescription drug falls under the category of that which the text speaks. And if that's true, then certainly all narcotics and other street drugs, whether legal or illegal, and in our day and age, we certainly must say something about the use of marijuana. The Bible nowhere 
addresses marijuana by name. But by implication it does. In a passage such as this and others. And then... There's a distinction to be made even between the drinking of a little wine for thy stomach's sake and oft infirmities and to rejoice a heart and the partaking of drugs which have an immediate effect on the mind and immediately dull the mind. In other words, what I'm saying is that our text does address what in our society has become legalized but something regarding which the child of God must say, it is off limits to me. It will not help my new man. It will only influence my old man. And so, I need to guard against it. And if I'd say that, and we would about marijuana, than certainly about those drugs that even society itself recognizes yet are harmful and has not legalized. Thirdly, by way of application and broadening the text, let's see that in the text you really have instruction regarding the folly of sin. All sin, any sin, sin in any form, for sin harms Sin destroys self. Sin brings us under its sway and power. And time and time again, you and I show that we are fooled and deceived by sin and by temptation. In other words, as we go on to see why the drunkard is a fool, we ought not merely think, to look out or call to mind whoever the town drunkard is and imagine that he was really roasted in the sermon this evening, but we ought to examine our own hearts and see what principles there are in the text that we must take to heart. Folly of the drunkard, then in the second place, is that he is deceived by wine. And the bulk of the text drives home this point. First of all, it does so by telling us what there is about wine that is deceptive. Verse 31, Look thou not upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. Three phrases, each referring to a different property of the wine. There's first of all the color. And the color is red, and a red beverage looks delicious. Then there is the fact that it giveth his color in the cup. The the verse, by the way, the second uh, two phrases of the verse are not well translated. At least they don't convey really the idea uh, very well. But the idea of giving his color in the cup is really this. His eyes gleam. I'm being more literal. His eyes gleam. Well, how does wine have eyes? The reference is to the bubbles to the gleamingness of the wine, to the the brightness of the wine. And this only adds to its attractiveness. It looks delicious all the more because it is red and because it is, as it were, sparkling at you. And then it moveth itself aright. More literally, it goes down smoothly. It goes down in a straight way. And the reference then is to the taste of the wine. And the, the, the beautiful feel, the lovely feel in the throat when one drinks wine. 
What is deceptive about wine? Its earthly properties, what it looks like, and how it tastes. It looks good. It tastes good. A little looks good. A little tastes good. Therefore, wine says to you and to me, if a little is good, a lot is better. And you and I are reminded not to judge a thing by how it looks. Wine does exactly to us what Satan did to Eve. Notice how it looks, Eve. And notice how it would taste. And then God said, don't? What kind of a God do you have who would forbid you to drink or eat something that looks good and tastes good? And in listing Eve sinned, and we all bear the consequences. So guard against judging a substance by how it looks and tastes. The deceptiveness of wine uses its earthly properties to that end. The deceptiveness of it is that one it leads one to forget the goal. And now wine is personified in verse 32. At the last, Alright, you're going to look on the wine now when it's red and when it's gleaming and when it, when it tastes so good. At the last, when it's all over with, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Wine is personified here. It does something. It has a goal with you. Now that bottle of wine can't in and of itself, can it? It's just simply a thing. But Satan... He has the goal, and he's using that bottle to his advantage. And his goal is that you forget that when a little is good, too much is not. And that you think to yourself, when a little is good, a lot is better. And so you drink, and then at the end he says, I've got you. Haven't you caught animals using the very same principle? In a trap, you want food. It will taste good. Ha, you're trapped. And that's exactly where I wanted you. And Satan does the same to us. It biteth at the last like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. That's to say that at its worst... And this isn't just a very hypothetical and and a small percentage, but at its worst, it kills. Many have died while under the influence. Others are ruined spiritually because they are a devotee of the God of wine and alcohol and will not put it aside. At the last it biteth like an serpent. A serpent and stingeth like an adder. At the very worst, it kills. At the very best, it hurts painfully. For a serpent and an adder, even if not poisonous to the point of death, remind you, they bit you. And so, the child of God who says, I can handle it will find he's been hurt by it. 
In the third place, in setting forth the folliness of uh, the drunkard's folly, the text says what spiritual consequences come from intoxication. And so this is a concrete way now, spiritually, in which the serpent bit and the adder stung. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Now there are really only two concrete commandments that are embedded in this. The seventh, thine eyes shall behold strange women. The beholding of a strange woman leads very quickly, in the case of a drunk person, to fornicating with a strange woman. And then thine heart uttering perverse things refers to either the third or the ninth or both, those commandments that directly regulate our speech. But implied in verse 33 is that the drunkard does not have regard for any of God's law and therefore will willingly give himself over to any sin. Why are these two singled out? Well, in the first place, because the one who gets drunk is often found in bad company already, that is, in unga- among ungodly friends. And if you're found in such company, then drunkenness won't be the only sin you together commit. In the second place, because drunkenness lowers the inhibitions. And so one readily and more quickly does when drunk what one would not do when sober. The warning, therefore, is to the point, thine eyes shall behold strange women. That's, of course, something even a sober man might do, but by the grace of God and the Spirit working in him, he will say, but the very beholding and the thinking is sin. And I'm going to hate that sin. I'm going to turn from that sin. And I'm going to look only on my wife or pray the Lord to give me one. Whereas the one who's not filled with the Spirit, but filled with wine, gives himself over to the strange woman. And now the same thing about thine eyes shall utter, thine heart shall utter perverse things. Have you ever stopped short and said, wow, did I really just think that? Did that thought go through my mind? It was a thought of murder, perhaps. Maybe it was a thought of rape. Maybe it was a thought of robbery. It it was a heinous sin I just thought of. And have you ever said, I'm so glad people cannot see my thoughts. I don't have some conversation bubble above my head that they can see what I just thought. Again, when the child of God recognizes that and he or she is filled with the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit doesn't mean we never sin. But to be filled with the Spirit, such a one hates that sin and says, Lord, guard the door of my lips. And now one who's drunk gives vent to everything that he's thinking. Every evil thought of his heart. And there's a reason why some drunk will readily say what they really think of the gospel. What they really think of church and of Jesus Christ. Oh, when sober, on a Sunday, they'll come. Maybe they'll even partake of the sacrament. And then, under the influence, they will disparage the sacrament in a way that shows that their outward partaking 
wasn't of faith, that they don't love these spiritual things. Well, let's sum this point up this way. If ever you're drunk, and if ever your elders say to you, well, there's a number of sins, we're going to charge you with this and this and this, all of which are because you're drunk, but then while drunk, You blaspheme the name of your God. While drunk, you lied about others. And we're going to hold you accountable for those things too. And you and I may say, I couldn't help it. But you have to see the point of the text. Yes, you got bit. You got stung. You got caught in the trap. And fourthly, the deceptiveness of wine, as the text speaks of it, is even physical. It promises happiness, but it brings misery. And verse 29 demonstrated that already. But so do verses 34 and the first part of 35. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. Think of a mast, a ship in the middle of the sea. And the mast, the place where you would most quickly feel the motions of the ship in the waves. It's the lookout. And maybe even a man who wasn't inebriated would on that lookout get nauseous or dizzy. But how certainly that is the effects of drunkenness, nausea, dizziness. Or the first part of the verse said, Thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea. And now the reference isn't to the fact that you're on a ship and you look for a a, a cot to lie on and you have the motions of the waves. The reference is to somebody who says, I'm tired. Oh, look at the water. I'll go lay down in the water. What is that one doing? He's going to drown himself. There is a physical danger. It comes down to this. Lack of judgment. Under the influence, one miscalculates. And the miscalculations are at the very least harmful and at the very most deadly. And then, finally, there is the deceptiveness of it. There's the attempt to preserve honor and integrity. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. What are all these wounds you have? You've been drunk? You've been stumbling? You've been falling down? Oh no, somebody beat me. Who beat you? I don't remember. Where were you? I don't remember. But somebody beat me. I will not take responsibility for my actions. I will blame my problems on somebody else. And I do want to awake. I do want to become sober. When shall I awake? I want to so that I will seek it yet again. And you have the impenitence of the drunkard set forth. Child of God, recognizing that you or I have sinned, and sinned in concrete ways, doesn't say, well, as soon as I'm done with the consequences of my sin, I'm going to sin again. That was enjoyable. That's what the drunkard is saying here. I will seek it yet again. The only reason he wants to be freed from this misery is to return to it. 
Now, very briefly, having set forth the main essence of the text, I need to make three general points. In the first place, the folly of which the text speaks is both spiritual and physical. And the text is pointed out both. The world understands the physical foolishness of drunkenness. And the world itself says to one who is a habitual drunkard, get help. You're a danger to yourself. You're a danger to society. Get help. Now the child of God says, the physical danger to self and society isn't all there is. It isn't even the first concern. There's a spiritual also. Let let the child of God who partook of the Lord's Supper this morning and is now filled with the Spirit recognize that. In the second place, I begin, or at least in the introduction I said, the text is among the most graphic in Scripture to set forth the foolishness of the sin. And it does. It does so, so graphically that you look at this person, it's describing, and the sober person is tempted to laugh. What a fool! Do you see your sins and my sins, even if they aren't the sin of drunkenness, are as foolish? Do you see that if you are a slave to your sin and want to seek it yet again, you also are so foolish? But the Holy Spirit does here present the drunkard in this way so that we can all recognize the folly of it. And thirdly, again, to the person, whether young or old, who says, but I can handle it. I know how to walk up kind of near the edge, but not go over the edge. To that, notice how the Holy Spirit set forth these consequences of drunkenness in the future tense And the future tends not in a predictive, not this could happen, but in a sense of this will happen. It's certain thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. There is no such thing as you or me handling it. That is giving ourselves over to drunkenness, there is only this. The responsible child of God says, as I pick up this wine glass, God give me grace to partake to his glory. And I've poured what I've already judged to be enough for me so that I need no more. And having drunk this predetermined amount and aiming to the glory of God, these consequences of drunkenness will not come on me. Beloved, the question is, are we taking these lessons to heart? Is anyone here? Who, if you're honest with yourself, would admit, That you're a drunkard. And if so, are you going to get help? Are we taking these lessons to heart? 
which is to say, fathers and mothers, when you drink in the presence of your children, do they see in you one who drinks in moderation, knowing a wise limit, and therefore is able, perhaps, to discipline the child after having drunk a wine or a beer, and not become rash or harsh because you're under the influence. In that way, are you teaching your children how to drink responsibly? And then again, especially this, to each one of us, when somebody says to you, you should not say that, you should not have done that, that sin, do you say, yeah, there are worse things, It's that attitude towards sin that is exposed as being foolish at the last part of the text. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Now all of this positively and implied in the text admonishes us to wisdom. That admonition is explicit. And that's worth pointing out because in the book of Proverbs, the admonitions are not always explicit. They're usually implicit. A general truth is stated and it's opposite. And the child of God understands there's an implied calling, a positive admonition, and a negative prohibition. But in the text, it's not merely implied. It's explicit. In verse 31, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red. That's really a matter of saying, don't begin the process that leads to drunkenness. Don't be fooled by the wine. The admonition is negative. Look not thou, as is much of God's law, because it is my nature. But implied in the negative is a positive. Be wise. And in a nutshell, that positive, be wise, means to tell you and me, When your life is grievous, and you just want to escape reality somehow, turn to God. When there's a hurt in the past that surfaces in your thoughts again, and you want to somehow deal with it, turn to God. When sin, your sin, or the sins of others have broken you and bring you low, Look to Christ. There is hope. There is help. And there you will find happiness. That's the positive admonition of the text. It really comes in different words, striking words, earlier in the book in Proverbs 9 verse 5. Proverbs 8, set forth wisdom, personified wisdom, in such a way that you understand wisdom really is Jesus Christ. And now wisdom, chapter 9, does things, and one thing wisdom does is call. Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine which I have mingled. And embedded in that, the wine which I have mingled. It's not a physical wine anymore. It's not a substance. It refers to the gospel, the fullness of the gospel, and the joy that the gospel gives embedded in that verse 
is the reminder that the gospel provides the answer to all the troubles of life which some, in turning to wine, try to find, but never will find. Redeemed child of God, if wine rejoices your heart, see in Jesus Christ and in his gospel something that rejoices your soul. If wine gives that joy temporarily, see in Jesus Christ, one who gives such satisfaction permanently. And it's Jesus Christ himself who calls. We're not only admonished to be wise, but we're admonished by wisdom himself. Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mingled. And when you do that, When you find in the gospel and in the word of God and in the triune God in Christ, the one to whom you will turn in your troubles, then instead of woe and contentions, misery and sorrow, you have joy and comfort and cheer. Instead of wounds without cause, you have a body that you put in the service of your Lord. Though you might not be healed of your bodily ailments, you will look for ultimate healing the day of his return. When you speak, you will not utter perverse things, but speak that which accords with the word of God. You will behold not a strange woman, but the bride of Jesus Christ, the church, and speak good things of her. You will tarry not long with wine, but tarry long with God himself." And when shall I awake, you say, when in a pit of despair, I will not turn to a substance. When shall I awake, I will seek Him yet again. Those blessings come on one who turns to God for happiness and help. The ungodly seek wine and women. Two great dangers to the child of God also but one who knows the joys of salvation in Jesus Christ finds his joy not in wine or women, but in his Savior. Amen. Father which art in heaven, give us to taste of the joys of thy salvation and the richness of the gospel. And when we're prone to turn to earthly substances or earthly wisdom to try to deal with our problems and troubles, give us to turn to thee instead and find in thee and in thy word the help we need. Because we're so weak and because we're so foolish, do thou by thy spirit what we would not do of ourselves. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.